0: Ignition sequence start, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, we all engine we have a 3, two, one, and, and, oh I'm sorry, that's your
1: job, <laughs> <laughs> Alright, welcome to Launchpad Podcast, I'm Aaron and matt we have a very
2: special guest in the launch pad who do we have Uh, we we have some special effects royalty we have a fella named steve johnson steve thanks for coming over
0: yes thank you so much for having me how are we going to make this interesting
2: uh well (laughs) i don't want to put pressure on you but i've heard that you're a very interesting character you guys know steve he's done pretty much every single awesome movie that has any sort of effects and i gotta say and this isn't me just brown nosing steve but You've done so many movies and so many effects that even as an effects guy, when I watch it, I'm like, wait, how did they do that? And like, you are the king of that. You like, really? I, and I mean that
0: sincerely. OK, well, good. This is getting off to an interesting start then. Thank you very much. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Well, we're going to ask, there's a whole section on where we ask you about all the stuff that you messed up too, so we'll get to that as well. All right, excellent. <laughs> but let's uh, let's start with some background. Can you tell us a little about where you grew up, what you were interested in, the kind of stuff you did?
0: Yes, I can. I grew up, uh, just like uh, we were just speaking before you listeners came online, about the, the Mixon brothers, Bart and Brett Mixon, two effects guys that are also from Texas. I'm from Texas. Strangely enough, we're all approximately the same age. We grew up in Houston, surrounding area of Houston, at the same time. You know, before the makeup effects kind of juggernaut even hit, it was about the time of Rick Baker's King Kong, Star Wars, a little bit after The Godfather. Um, and we didn't even know each other back then, but, but we were all toiling in our garages and in our bedrooms, uh, watching Hammer films and, and, uh, Universal classics and trying to figure out how they made this stuff. And that's exactly how I got started, just being, having a kind of an, an innate interest in the macabre and the bizarre. And, and, I just, you know, Stephen King gets asked this question all the time. Why do you write? And his answer, his patented answer is because I can't not write. Well, that's how I always felt about making monsters. I couldn't not make them. So I just was drawn to it.
1: And what did you start with? Did you get a hold of some scar wax or did you start making things with paper mache? What was your first dive into making things? Well, you
0: have to remember that this was in the 60s in in Texas, uh, about as far as you can get from Uh, either New York or California, where these practices were actually going on. And there were no books back then. There was no Stan Winston School of Character Arts. There was no internet. There was no Tom Sabine School. There was no way to learn it. You had to figure it out yourself. And uh, that's what I did. So I'm like, hmm, how do I make a werewolf like Lon Chaney? And so I literally stole one of my grandmother's wigs, (laughs) and cut all the hair off it, and took Elmer's glue and glued it onto my friend's face and made a pretty reasonable werewolf when I was like 12. And then I'm like, ooh, how do I make a zombie? And I'm like, okay, I've seen those apple headed things at, at country fairs where they, they peel the skin off an apple and they let them dry in the sun. They get all pruny and wrinkly and then they carve those into faces. And so I did that. I, I peeled the skin off apples, let them dry in the sun, peeled that wrinkled skin off again, took the same poor bastard friend of mine and glued that on his face with the Elmer's glue. <laughs>
2: What age did you start getting your hands dirty? Let's do it that way.
0: From as long as I can remember, actually. I mean, I, I can remember actually being in kindergarten, literally five years old, and taking coffee cans and construction paper and creating eight-foot totem poles. I just was born with this innate desire to want to make stuff.
2: Wow, that's 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 pretty interesting, man. Yeah, kindergarten it came out of the womb
0: like that. Yeah, it's kind of weird.
1: Stoking your creativity. When you started watching these Hammer films and these Universal Monster films, which one of these monsters became your early favorite? Which Universal Monster, Hammer Monster, speaks to you?
0: Well, I, mean, I loved all the stuff that Karloff did. And even before that, I loved Lon Chaney Sr., his silent films, because he was doing his own makeup and without prosthetics, just really distorting his face in very innovative ways. Uh, but you know, if it comes right down to it, I hate to ask, to ask what favorites are, but I, I, I preferred the Hammer films the Universal films, actually, because even in the 30s, the Universal films had incredible production design. But when we go past that a decade and look what Hammer was doing in England, oh, my God, the production value is unbelievable on those. I mean, the, 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 the tapestries were so rich.
1: Well, Universal had to build a Castle Hammer. They just went to a real one.
0: They did, but they also <laughs> built a lot of sets in their production. See, here's the thing. I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of British people and work in, in England for quite a bit of time. And they just look at things differently than we do. They, they've got, uh, I think, a, a better eye as a country for detail. And so I really prefer the Hammer films to the Universal ones.
1: Yeah, I like the Hammer films. They sometimes got a little bit bloodier, which I enjoyed, especially in that era with the early color ones. That blood was so red, it really popped. When I was a kid, I was like, whoa!
0: And they had lesbian vampires that got their tits out. Oh
2: yeah! <laughs> Do not forget about that, Remy. <laughs> forget what color the
0: fucking blood was. <laughs> asking me which I preferred, Hammer or Universal? I was a kid. Are you kidding me? Yeah. The song <laughs> that were covered with blood. I wonder what's
2: happening. Yeah, right. There's not as many books written about the influence of the lesbian vampire tits as, as there could be, I guess. Back to my next book. <laughs> I read an interview that said that you met with Rick Baker while you were still in high school. Yes. And the interview that I read made one mention of that Baker acknowledged that you had a knack for problem solving, but it didn't really go into that. Is that, is that something you either remember saying or having said, or, or could you shed some light or explain a little bit more about what that might mean?
0: I, I can absolutely explain it. And I have to mention right here and now that there is a full chapter in Rubberhead Volume 1, which you can pick up on my website at SteveJohnsonEffects.com. That's what
1: I got my copy last <laughs> week.
0: <laughs> okay Then you should read that chapter because it explains it very lyrically and poetically, and it's a beautiful chapter. um Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that was the thing. I, I, again, I said earlier, I was I was in Texas, and you know, while there was NBC in New York and what Dick Smith was doing on the East Coast, and there was certainly what was happening on the West Coast with Tom Berman and and Rick Baker at that point, and Stan Winston even in Texas, there was no way to learn it, so I had to figure it out myself. And that was the thing, not my work. When I showed Rick my work, I was 16 I met him at a convention. One of the first horror sci-fi conventions in the world. Actually, my mother had to drive me down there, but I met him and i was so nervous. I showed him my very thin portfolio and it was terrible. I mean, <laughs> my, 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 I would do an ancient a- Asian prophet, but on a, on a 12 year old kid. So, it was, <laughs> so none, none of it was very effective and, and Rick, you know, agreed with me that my work was not very good yet. But what he was impressed with was the fact that I was in Texas figuring it out on my own, because that really is kind of the tragedy of all this information being available on the internet right now and all these websites and all these schools. Uh, The tragedy of that is that the information is out there. And what it does is it kind of minimizes the problem-solving mentality that you really need to develop to become great at anything, not just makeup effects, but at anything, I mean, it's all about problem solving. It's about going into your own mind and figuring out how to, you know, you, if you deteriorate a vampire one way in a movie, well, guess what? The next time you get a movie that a vampire has to t- deteriorate in, you don't want to do it the same way. So you have to solve that problem. And so that's what Rick was impressed with in, my problem solving capabilities.
2: That's interesting that you say that because when you were talking about growing up, and we talked about this with Bart Nixon as well, you know, you you grew up in a different age than than people who are interested in effects now, even 10 years ago did, but, you know, being in Texas and you, you might feel kind of isolated, like you said, that you're not near New York and and Los Angeles where stuff is kind of happening. At least there's, there's those, that, that bit of information. Now the information is ridiculously prevalent. I wanted to know what you thought, you know, the, the new creators of today, how they have it different than you did. And I think you hit the nail on the head there where you're right. They didn't have to figure that out. And a lot of that Rumi and I call it like the oh shit mentality of like we prepped this we tested it everything was fine but now it's not working or now there's you know the director asked for something last minute how do we come up with that and you're kind of right if you've been given all this information you didn't discover any of it that you, that might be uh well that that's true to lacking, a point right?
0: but the other thing is you have to you know take a look at it from a bird's eye point of view and the fact is no matter what people say about the digital takeover of practical effects no matter what people say about what we're discussing right now, the fact remains that there is better work going on now everywhere than has ever gone on before. I mean, you can look, there are people in Sweden and Denmark that are, you know, God rest Dick Smith's soul, but that are, are doing work that rivals and is in a lot of ways better than what Dick did. There's people everywhere because the knowledge is out there. And you look at a show like Monster Palooza or International Makeup Artist Trade Show, and there are people all over the world that are doing this stuff just for the fashion, doing it just for the love. They're doing it in their basements. They're doing it in their garages. And maybe directors and producers aren't throwing hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars at them, but the work is bubbling up and it's still there and it's there better than ever. And it's amazing and it's wonderful.
1: Yeah, that's really encouraging. I, I currently work on, on The Walking Dead and, and we do a lot of digital stuff, but every day when I get to see a dummy come out on set and they smash his head and blood rigs go, that still reminds you like... There's still such a genuine quality to a real practical effect, and that's just that always just thrills me to see.
0: Yeah, The Walking Dead man—they have nailed the zombie genre, have they not? It the, the, and and it's, it's almost like I look at the work they do on that show, and I'm really good friends with Kevin Wozniak, who's the lead guy on that stuff. And uh, it's almost like they're entertaining themselves. Like how how many more zombies can we do? I've got it. Let's <laughs> put mushrooms all over our guys, a guy's face. Huge mushrooms. Yeah. You know, just this weird stuff. And in the future, people you know, people used to look back at my generation at, at Tom's work, Tom Savini, you know, all that stuff, uh, and go, wow, they painted dark circles around their eyes and a helicopter blade chopped this guy's head off. That's really cool. How much further can you take it? But now Walking Dead will become the new benchmark for this kind of stuff forever. I don't know if anybody's ever going to beat that exciting stuff. Who knew zombies could be exciting? Again?
1: Yeah, it's tough, it definitely, especially for the zombie genre.
0: It's also
2: <laughs> interesting how it's become, not just zombies, but pretty much, you know, a lot of the horror genre has become so mainstream now, whereas, like, you know, you're talking about Dick Smith and Tom Savini stuff, you kind of had to be, to a certain extent, in the know to be into that stuff back in the 70s, even the early 80s. But, like, my dad watches The Walking Dead, and he doesn't know anything cool, you know? But, like, he watches that show, and, like, if he watches that, that means my mom is at least cognizant that there's a show called The Walking Dead that's about zombies. And, like, that's a microcosm of what's happening across the country where zombies have now become this thing. There's actual like zombie walks and zombie runs. There's even zombie fun runs with like obstacle courses and shit. And it's like random people do that stuff now where I feel like you really had to be that weird horror nerd back in the sixties, seventies and even a little bit in the eighties to, to be in there. It's almost like, absolutely
0: uh, did. I mean, we were ostracized again. I grew up in the sixties and seventies in Texas. I I was that kid who was chosen last for the, Softball team, and I was the weird kid who you know, glued his grandmother's wig on his friend's face, and <laughs> it was it was not you know. I mean, look at it. Look at Comic Con. Look at cosplay. I mean, it's a big, big deal. It's a huge billion-dollar business now
2: it like it's, it's you huge. think of like evil ed the character evil ed in fright night that used to be the guy who liked horror now the guy who liked horror is pretty much anyone that could be in the room you know it's kind of it's very interesting and like you said it's it's very encouraging i think you know digital effects and some the state of movies and film and television now sometimes and often gets shit on and sometimes it deserves it but i think you're right you know when you take into account the volume and the quality of at least some of this stuff it really is encouraging
0: it is. It's everywhere now. To
1: bring it back to Texas, when you were working on this stuff and met your idol, what gets you out of Texas and onto a movie set? What was the next big step for you?
0: Well, it was easy. Again, I, as I said, in relevance to that scene King quote, I just could not not do it. And so I planned from the time I was 16 years old to get in my car the minute I graduated high school and race as fast as I could to Rick Baker's doorstep in Hollywood. And start working in this industry, and so I did. And I, you know, I, <laughs> I knocked on his door, and I, he's like, "Who the hell are you?" And I'm like, uh, "I'm that kid. Don't you remember me from a couple years back when we been corresponding?" And he's like,
2: "Remember the Apple skins?" He's
0: like, "Are you kidding me? You drove all the way across the country? Do you have a place to stay? What the hell?" He goes, "Here, here's Greg uh, Canham's number. Here's Rob Boteen's number. Here's Tom Berman's number. Go work with them for a couple of years, then come back to my door." And uh, I did it immediately. I mean, I did a bunch of uh, part-time jobs, but only for about the first six months. I parked cars. I I moved furniture. I lifted. I actually burglarized a couple of houses. (laughs) 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 Well, to my credit, I was delivering flowers uh, on Valentine's Day as a temporary job. And if I knocked on the door to deliver the flowers and nobody answered, I would just go around back and walk in and rifle through their valuables. (laughs) (laughs) long before security games, so literally six months after I got here after a brief stint and burglary I, I got my first call and that was from Greg Cannon and I did a movie with him and directly and that's where I met Rob Botin Greg Cannon for those of you that don't know uh, has so many Oscars he uses them for dildos at this point I don't know what he's <laughs> Mrs. Doubtfire Curious Casey Benjamin Button amazing stuff he's an incredible artist and then Rob Botin I worked with him afterwards uh, on several films The Fog a movie called Tanya's Island, The Howling. Yeah. So I cut my teeth with Rick's proteges, Greg and Rob. And then at some point during The Howling, when we were in post production, Rick had finally gotten the green light for American Werewolf. And he figured, well, Steve's good enough now. He's made his mistakes <laughs> on my <laughs> job. So let's bring him over to American Werewolf. And that's how I started with Rick.
1: See, that's amazing because you were at the dawn of like sort of the transformation technology was getting there like the werewolf transformations for the howling and american werewolf in london were really i mean this is this is some of the the height of technology and one of the things that because of those movies people still to this day are trying to achieve that effect as well as those movies did with all these different new techniques but it's like those that era of just those few werewolf movies just changed the landscape of practical effects when you're working on this stuff did you know that this was groundbreaking or was this just something that had sort of organically grown in the shops you were at
0: no you never realize it. Mean, even when i worked on Ghostbusters, i didn't realize that that were going to be a huge hit and slimer would become iconic and you're so close to it, you don't think about it. You're always thinking about your next project, and you know, on the project you're working on at the moment, you're just trying to have as much fun as you can and do the best job you can, and you just don't think about it. I mean, at least I didn't, you know. And in regard to the land breaking effects in the Howling in American Werewolf, let me ask you a question: When did movies start? When did Edison come up with his kinetoscope? Was it like one thousand, nine hundred and twelve, something like that?
1: Yeah, early turn of the century.
0: Right, right. Because electricity wasn't even around until right before that. So yeah, so these people would go, and they would turn a crank, and they'd see these static images move. But then, what year did American Werewolf come
2: out? Eighty-one. Okay, so eighty. Yeah, eighty-one. There was
0: about a seventy-year gap from the dawn of filmmaking to transformation sequences like we see in American Werewolf and, and the Howling. And but but the, another question: Madame Tussauds has been around since the seventeenth century. They were making perfect likenesses of people. So why did it take seventy years to figure out you could make a rubber head, distort it, and film it? Why did it take that long? I've always been fascinated by that. And then that started an incredible renaissance, and you know the the whole American Werewolf slash Howling thing. You know, suddenly directors and writers like, well, we can we can make a guy's head turn into a basketball, like the Beast Within. Remember that? Yeah. So people just started saying, "Let's just stick. Let's let's have squares come out of their cheeks. You know, let's do whatever we can." I do, I don't know. I find the whole thing fascinating that it took that long to do something so fundamentally basic. So you say it's amazing. I say it's it's amazing that it took that long to figure it out. <laughs> I mean, that's
1: a very interesting perspective. But it, I guess it comes down to the the fact that somebody just dared to do it because. You know, there, there must have been a point where somebody said, hey, can we do this? And somebody else said, no, that sounds too hard. But in this era, whether it be maybe it was the good drugs in the 80s, maybe it was just a creative time but people said, yeah, fuck it. Let's try this shit. This sounds awesome. Let's well, do it. I think
0: it, has, I think it has a lot to do with fear. It's like, you know, when you take when you shop a project around Hollywood, even if it's the best script you've ever ever read, nobody wants to be the person that says yes on it for fear of it being a bomb. Right.
2: Mm. So the yeah. job
0: is always to say no. And I think it affects people. Up until a certain point, they were afraid to fail. So if you mm-hmm. stick a tube in something and you want to, you know, achieve to inflate, what if it breaks? Then you're the asshole that's you know ruining the movie. So I think it it kind of took balls and it took bravery and it took experience and it took people just saying yes, we're going to take it to the next level. And if it breaks, we'll fix it and we'll keep going on.
2: And it's it's interesting to say that too, Steve, because I think you and Aaron and I all have similar inspirations and, and special effects artists that we've looked up to who, who we wanted to follow into the business. But one thing that always, since I was started studying you in college, was, in my opinion, the thing that differentiates you between some of these other guys that you've mentioned is you specifically seem, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but you specifically seem like you want to get the most done in a shot, an uncut, no cutaway, no cheat shot. And you you seem to do that with a lot of morphs. You do that with a lot of body melts. Um, I mean, Dead Heat comes to mind. There's an amazing sequence where this girl starts decomposing right in front of you. And you seem like, as an effects artist, like you pitch that in the biggest chunks possible, where I feel like, practically speaking, a lot of times you try to break that stuff up. Exactly what you said. If something does break, if something does go wrong, you still have all these other chunks that at least in editing you can put around it but I mean in Fright Night in in Blade 2 there's a bunch of stuff where you seem like you're like alright we can have these six things happen in one uncut shot and that's something that as an effects artist and also someone as a fan of certainly horror but definitely film in general I love to see that shit and I think that you are like the king of that uncut stuff
0: well thank you for noticing and thank you for saying that I mean the fact is you know as an effects artist as any type of artist I can only get really excited about something, get out of bed in the morning if I'm exciting myself. So I know for Christ's sake, if I get excited about something, the audience is certainly going to get excited about it because I live and breathe and sleep and eat and dream this stuff, right? And the audience, my job is to show them something they could never dare imagine themselves. And so I've also always been a huge risk taker, not only in my professional life, but certainly well-documented in my personal life (laughs) (laughs) and that's what keeps me excited the fact that you know walking on thin ice the fact that something could go wrong but you you lay awake at nights and you worry and you worry and you think and you think and you think oftentimes i've described my job as to just worry and that really is my job Mm -hmm. is to worry because if you don't worry something probably is going to go wrong but you have to think about it in advance to make certain that doesn't happen and i just like to excite myself and, and 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 to rally the team and make everybody around me do their best job as possible. I mean, I've always considered myself more of an art director than anything else, more than an artist, because, you know, you don't do this stuff by yourself. You have a huge team of people. And your job, if you're doing it properly, is to bring out the best in them. And that's what I think I've always done. And that's why we end up with these crazy effects like in Blade and Dead Heat and other movies that you mentioned in front I thought this review was about *Fright Night*. Are we ever going to talk about *Fright Night*?
2: We're going to get there. There's just so much cool shit to talk We're, about with are we you.
0: <laughs> <mixing this? laughs> We're, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of the interest, the, the the revised interest in all of this stuff, um, yeah. these movies from the 80s and 90s, the, the nostalgia for them, it's a good thing because all these Blu-ray interviews, things like this, uh, my book, Shannon's book, and book, if this stuff doesn't get put down for posterity now, we're all going to be old and seen now and the stories will be gone forever. So this is great that yeah. this is coming back around now and people are interested in these movies again because now we have the technology to put this stuff down for posterity and I think it's a responsibility. And that's one of the reasons I wrote my series, Rubberhead, because, you know, a hundred years from now, nobody's ever going to know what it was like to be in the glory days of the makeup effects renaissance in the 80s and 90s. And now they can look back at these moth-eaten, deteriorating books. <laughs> go, wow, that's what it was like. They used to take drugs. They used to do cocaine while they made Slimer. How do
1: you like that? <laughs> well, that brings me right to Ghostbusters, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. And a good segue is... You're working on, on Slimer and The Librarian Ghost and The Taxi Driver. And in an interview, I heard that the note process was pretty brutal for this. So what is it like to suddenly be on this huge movie and then all the executives are breathing down your neck with these nitpicky notes? What What's going through your head at this point in your early career?
0: Well, it's a living, breathing hell. <laughs> um, and again, uh, in Robert Head Volume 1, which you can pick up on my website, that's right, stevejohnsonfx.com. Uh, or you can pre order Rubberhead Volume 2 on rubberhead.bigcartel.com. Sorry, I have to cut myself in. Um, and Volume 2 is coming great, by the way. But there's a chapter, there's a chapter in Volume 1 about the creation of slime and It touches on all of that because it was new to me. Because this was the first I had only worked for, like i said before, Greg Cannon, Rubber Team, Rick Baker. They were the people dealing with the producers, they were the people dealing with the production designers and the art directors. I was just set to do a task, punch hair in this head, make a mold of this, figure out how to make hair grow on an ear. I was not dealing with the business end of it. So when I went over to Richard Evans' company, Film Corporation for Ghostbusters, the first film I did, there, I did all the greatest bits of the years, you know, the Fright Night, I come Little China, I <clears throat> guys do a bunch of stuff there. It was my first time to, to, to have to deal with that. and. It was pretty insane. It was insane. I mean, it, you know, we basically went like this. Um, you know, I get 12 people in and the limestone cat's eye, nerdy girl making notes. 12 executives, I have no idea who they're on. They're all standing in a circle around my full size Slimer sculpture, And they're like, hmm, he's not cartoony enough. Make him more cartoony. And I'm like, okay. A week later, he's much more cartoony. They come back in and girl makes notes. All the guys rub their chins and nod and they go, uh, He's too cartoony. <laughs> <laughs> a week later, they we come back. Well, uh, there's something missing. I'm like, really? What do you think's missing? They're like, I don't know. We'll know it when we see it. They come back. And it's, Why don't we try ears on it? They come back. Take the ears off. That looks ridiculous. Uh, make his nose bigger. <laughs> what? That's ridiculous. Make his nose smaller. Give him more pathos. Less pathos. I mean, my God in heaven, I, I could have killed myself on that project. And the other thing is, I was fueling the process with and this is not just me, kids don't do drugs, but when it was the 80s, from the writers to the director to to, to everybody, to the actors, everybody was fueling that entire film on cocaine. That movie would not be what it is if there was no cocaine involved. I am mean, telling you.
1: Ghostbusters brought to you by
0: cocaine. <laughs> uh, at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm blowing through so much money to buy cocaine to fuel the sculpture process that I was losing money on the project. I'm <laughs> like, <laughs> just... We haven't. We got to mold the thing. We got to figure out how we're going to make it. We we haven't even talked about his eyes or his teeth or Jesus Christ. You know? And at the very last minute we, that, that we were supposed to finally, and this is probably three months into the design process, we're supposed to get our final approval early in the morning. The next morning, ten a.m., all the producers are going to come back and give us just the thumbs up. But that afternoon, I get a note from the studio saying, "Make him look like John Belushi." <laughs> And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? I've been smelting this thing for three months. Blood's running out of my nose. Make him look like John Belushi? What are you talking about? As it turned out, uh, I don't know if you know the story, but surprisingly, a lot of people don't. Um, Harold Ramos and Dan Aykroyd wrote that script. And they originally wrote the part of Peter Vinkman for John Belushi to play. Yeah. And then John died, unfortunately. Um Prematurely by Steve Ballock, the Chateau Vermont, as we well all And so they kind of tailored and, and wrote in the part of Slimer so that, and, and think about it, it's a gluttony, fat slob. It's, like, it's John's part in Animal House. So they yeah. wrote the part of Slimer and Ghostbusters so that John could, in a sense, still be in the movie. And what's so funny about it, he's a ghost, like John was. <laughs> yeah. But you would think they would have told me this three months previously, right? It's like, now you're telling me this? That's and so explode. funny. And I'm like, can't we just do it through performance? Can't we do the one eyebrow up, the one eyebrow down thing? We'll, we'll do it through performance. we got to get this thing to mold. they like, no, make him look like Volusia. And so I didn't, and I just told them I did, and they said, he looks just like Volusia. Mold it. <laughs> Which worked every time, kids. Never forget that one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I've,
1: I've done that game before where they're like, make this slight adjustment and you just send it back again and they go, great, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> hey,
0: listen, they're the other producers, they know what they're talking about. Yeah, oh, sure. They,
2: they're paid to know what they're talking about, right? When you were on Ghostbusters, the story that I had heard and I have read is that before they gave you Slimer, they gave you like a test in the, the zombie cab driver. Is that true? That is true, yeah. Were you like, I got this. This is no problem. I could do zombies in my sleep. Or were you like shitting a brick over it?
0: No, it kind of wasn't like that. I mean, what I what the what, the way it uh, originated is that Richard Evelyn, the guy, but the genius behind Boston Corporation, wanted Rick Baker to come over and make the ghosts for Ghostbusters because what Richard did is he had just graduated from ILM, George Lucas's company, Industrial Light and Magic. He'd gone up there, won him a bunch of Oscars, and he said, "Fuck this, I want to go out on my own, do my own thing." And so he opened up this huge umbrella corporation in Marina Del Rey and his idea was, I'm not just going to do optical effects, because remember there were no digital effects back then. It was all done through photochemical processing, and, and, and custom built machines, I mean it was a, such a different business back then. So he goes, I don't want to just do optical effects, I want to do miniatures, I want to do pyrotechnics, I want to do animatronics, I want to do prosthetics, I want to have sound shooting stages, I want to do everything. I want my Production company. So when somebody comes to me a film like Ghostbusters, I will just handle it all. And so he wanted Rick to come in <clears throat> and handle the creature shop. And Rick said, "Are you kidding me? I've got my own own shop. I don't work for other people." <laughs> but I had just got back from a year in London with Rick on Greystoke, and we kind of had gotten to the end of our rope together because um, you know Rick was always my hero. He was always my my master, and I was the apprentice. But what happens generally? in a master apprentice relationship is at some point the apprentice says, well, it's no longer a matter of you telling me how to do it because you know more than I do. But now I've worked with you for years and years and years. And now I have a better idea. You know what I mean? So the, the, oh, yeah. the apprentice gradually learned so much. He thinks he can surpass the master. And so that's what had happened with Rick and I. And so Rick said, Hey, I got an idea. This was Rick's way of getting rid of me. He goes, I got an idea. Why don't you talk to this kid, Steve Johnson, I'm sure he'll be happy to do it. And so I went in and met with Richard and they're like, what the hell? This guy's, he's like 20 years old. We can't task him with millions of dollars worth of stuff. This is insane. But is Rick trying to sink us on our, our first movie? Oh, <laughs> yeah. And so, yes, my test was to do the zombie cab driver. They said, look, this thing is shooting in New York on location in a couple of weeks. You go make it. If it works, you got the job. And so I made it in my bedroom and I took it to New York and I shot it and got the job.
1: That's awesome. Wow. The
0: thing I like about that, and I have to say this real quickly. I'm end up mixing this, but I haven't even started for a minute. The thing about it was Rick had tasked me with assembling and coordinating and putting together the Jack Puppet mm-hmm. from American Werewolf. Oh, awesome. Which was kind of like a, a Muppet character, and nobody had really ever seen anything like that before. It was really, really really cool, and I assembled put it all together to the engineering art. And so when it came time to do the, the cab driver for Ghostbusters, I had already done one. And so I knew what not to do and what to play. So, my goal on that was to make it even better and more interesting than the puppet. So, I don't know if I failed or succeeded. There's only one shot. So, who knows?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, you put in so much work and it's like one moment, you know, you see it and then it's gone and you're like, well, well that was great.
0: All mechanical skeletons in the hand and it reaches for the, the old style taxi cab thing, with the crank where you used to start the, the meter going and it worked, but the shot's not in the movie. <laughs>
1: That's how it always goes. I mean, yeah, you work, you put so much work in, and then they cut half the shot, and it's only on for a blip of a second. But I mean, it's it's a memorable thing. You remember that that
2: that sequence for sure. It's quick as it is. The good thing, and these movies that we're talking about, movies like Ghostbusters and American Werewolf, and even like The Howling, even The Fog. There were so many things in it that now I think would be just a quick digital thing and because of that it wouldn't really register as strong as the audience but back then because it was like you said and you say that a lot steve you always say oh it was the 80s it was the 80s and the 80s was just this beautiful uncharted territory where you guys were just innovating the shit out of all this stuff and creating these things and i think maybe it's because you're so close to it because you're a creator but what you think was like a quick shot like literally influenced Aaron and i's careers you know what i mean
0: yeah, I don't, actually. <laughs> weird to think. But, but, you know, the thing is, yeah, in, in the 80s, yeah, all this stuff, it was because it was new, and there was this huge kind of explosion of things that people hadn't seen or imagined before. But you can go back to the 70s and think the same thing, but it was about story. The movies that were made in the 70s, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, they shoot horses, don't they? All these incredible movies. that would never get made mm-hmm. today. Yeah. Ever. In a million years. So we're, were based on story, really, really, really strong stories. So it's kind of a similar thing, but... It's kind of a downfall of the effects of, of the entire movie industry because look at how it's progressed. In the 70s, it was about story. In the 80s and 90s, it started becoming about spectacle. And my God, if you fucking, you couldn't tie me to a train and get me to see an Avengers movie. I, I, I just, how, many how many explosions can you see? I mean, you know what's going to happen. This movie's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And the monster's going to be so big at the end, you can't even film it. You know, it's just like, what's next? I'll yeah. tell you what's next virtual reality there you go yeah
1: i mean it's it's it all is just yet yeah, cruising to a point that I, I mean it's it's hard to fathom where it'll be in the next 10 years
0: yeah the movies that make money now have no story i mean no. and i make I a blanket statement like that but they're just spectacle and it just does nothing for
1: them they're just commercials for the sequel to the movie you're watching now
2: yeah. really <laughs> we've done uh Aaron and I just last uh, this past week released an episode uh what we were calling legacy monsters legacy characters so you have the old ones like the hammer and the universal monsters who kind of started horror movies where there is there's going to be like a main antagonist who usually is not a human then there's the 80s and in the 80s we kind of re-upped and we got a bunch of different ones including Freddy Krueger which you worked on Nightmare on Elm Street 4 the dream master right he is such an iconic character, and he's gone on for so long. He's been so enduring and endearing, just like a lot of these characters from the '80s. Uh, before I go get into one of my favorite '80s movies that you worked on, do you want to tell us what it was like having a hand in a Nightmare on Elm Street? Like such a huge, in, in, enduring franchise.
0: Yeah, I, I sometimes liken Robert's character to the new Frankenstein monster mm. because hmm. he kind of is, you know, because there's been a bunch of sequels, just like. With the Frankenstein monster, and uh, I, I will never forget. I, I went to a um, a film festival in Milan with Robert and Linnea Quigley, actually as well. And Robert and I ended up just getting annihilated one night, staggering through the streets, just getting. And everywhere we went, every bar we went, open all night in, in, in Milan, uh, people would recognize him as Freddy Krueger, and it was so fucking fun and i felt like i'm actually out with boris carloff in the 30s <laughs> we got lost that night we literally got lost and we it was like a fucking uh a cliche we were staggering as the sun rose up staggering arms around shoulders through the cobblestone streets singing show me the way to go <laughs> no, home. yeah, I'm, I wanna go home. and i'm thinking my god This is what Jack Pierce probably did with Boris Karloff in the 30s. And it was like, what a wonderful experience.
1: That's incredible. I I mean, that movie alone is is one of my favorites. It has some of the best kills of the entire series. And it had such creativity in what you could do in these dreamscapes. And the the death scene, which I know was a big part of your work. At what point did you decide well, we can do part of it with animatronics and regular scale things, but let's build a 20-foot sweater and put people in there. What what brought you to that decision? Like, let's go big.
0: Well, it just seemed easy for me. And people look back at that sequence, and, and I'll tell you, I was totally embarrassed by it when that movie came out. Everybody's like, oh, my God, how'd you do that? I'm just like, I hope this movie just goes away and nobody ever sees it. And it <laughs> oh. to, because to me, it's painfully obvious. I mean, how to do it? Rennie brought me in, Renny Harlan, the director, and he goes, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to do the whole film. And they're like uh, Rachel Towley, the producer is like, uh, this was back when for for a a huge period of time, what production companies did is they would split the work up because they had a very compressed pre-production schedule and they wouldn't trust one company to handle the entire film. So this is exactly what happened on, um, on nightmare on Elm street four. They, they brought me in first and they said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to do the whole film. And they said, no, we don't trust you. What do you really want to do? And I said, well, the end sequence, of course. And so, then they parceled out, uh, the cockroaches and discreetly in Van George and something to John Beekler and blah, blah, blah. And I think Kevin, Kevin Yeager still didn't make up on, yeah, he did. Kevin Yeager did Freddy Krueger make up on that. Yeah. But, um, you know, it just from day one, it was very, very obvious to me how to do it. it. never, I never questioned that we'd have to have a 20 foot puppet and we'd have to have miniatures that we tried to make them look as real as possible. And then. We, on the full scale we tried to make them look as fake as possible so that would somehow blend. there was something like 18 or 20 effects to pull that thing off and it's embarrassing to me i look back at, at it to this day and i guess it fits the tone of the film but it just seems so obvious how he did it did it fool you guys
1: well I mean, when I saw it as a kid, it blew my mind. And then when you learned how it was done, you're like, ingenious. And it's just you—you'd you'd never.
0: It wasn't genius. There was no other way to do it. <laughs> Tell
2: me another way. Well, I think you know what it is—it's it, special effects is not necessarily a matter of fooling. It's a matter of amazing. And a lot of times, like especially now that I know how a lot of stuff is done, if I'll watch some, if I'll watch how an effect happened, and actually have a really good example of this that I'll, I'll use as our transition to the next movie, but when you watch something even if you know how it was done the fact that you thought to do it that way to make it look so realistic or make it work in the in the in the context of the scene that you're showing is amazing and uh, i don't want to jump from nightmare if we're still on it but you worked on fright night and we actually tomorrow are interviewing tom holland and as part of research for that where we watched the movie and did some stuff and that pencil through the hand gag I knew watching it how you did it. Now, maybe when I first saw it and I was 10 years old, I had no clue. But I knew how you did it, or at least I had a good idea. But that didn't matter. It was still, as a 36-year-old guy who's done effects kind, you know, in the same vein, at least, it still is crazy impressive. And you didn't fool me, per se, but you amazed me. You know what I mean? It's effective, even though you know it's Sure, similar. sure.
0: Well, here's the tragedy about that. And every other effect we're probably going to discuss today is that you know how easy that would be. A twelve-year-old kid could do that effect on a on an iPad.
2: Sure. Yeah. But it's it's because no. of you. You did like you are the reference that they would figure that out from. You know what I mean? The fact that maybe twenty years ago I could have gotten in touch with you via a convention or you know someone who we both knew. But now I don't have to know you and I can go on your YouTube channel where you discuss that. And I think you're right. It's kind of a double-edged sword because now you have a proliferation of the effect or of the, um, of the process where people, are, you know, everyone's doing it. Some people who have some talent and some know-how and some people who are hacking it. But you're right. It does, certainly adds to the pool of, of people who now know how to do these things. And, and like you said, the evolution of the creative process where someone can take something you've done and then build onto that to make something different.
0: Uh, okay, good. I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just got a text. I lost oh, my train of thought. Let's, <laughs> but whatever you, you do, agree, I okay, did. cool. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's, let's jump into Fright Night. Fright Night, it's a couple years before Nightmare. Nightmare on Elm Street 4 was 88, Fright Night was 85. And I know a lot of our listeners will have seen this movie because it is, it is fantastic. It's like you said before, Steve. Moving on from this point, a lot of movies no longer have stories. They're just about the spectacle. This is a a great story, a very simple story that gets right to the point very, very fast. In Act One, it tells you what's going on. Vampire moves into a kid's house, and there's no, or next door to a kid's house, and there's no. There's no suspense as to whether or not he is a vampire. He's blatantly a vampire. The suspense comes from people not believing this kid and this kid trying to deal with it. And uh, right. you certainly, Steve, you certainly give him a lot of stuff to come up against and a lot of issues in that movie.
0: Well, again, that comes from Tom. I mean, that that comes from the script. That That is, as you said, it's a great script. And and the performers, it just all gelled. I mean, everybody in that movie, from Roddy McDowell to Chris to, to Amanda to Stephen... They're breakout performances, all of them. And I think the effects are secondary. I mean, I had, I had it out with John Carpenter the first time I met him on Big Trouble in China. And, you know, I had kind of over designed all of the effects before our first meeting. It turned out he'd been recently, uh, I, I don't want to use the word burned, but I'm going to use it anyway, incinerated, let's go with, by Rob Botin on the thing. And we all know that's a landmark film, and no one will ever vault over that. Uh, the impossibly high walls that they both created together, John and Rob, first practical effects. Yeah. Nobody's ever going to do that. Again. It's, it's, it's a landmark. It's, it's a, uh, But, you know, it went over budget, went over schedule. John was unhappy. So when I brought in all my, because I thought, okay, great, I've got a, I finally got a, um, an ally. You know, John Carpenter loves effects. Yeah. I'm going to get to do any, because he did the thing. He did Starman. I'm going to get to do anything I want, just like Rob Levine did on the thing. And I came into that first meeting and I showed him all these overblown or complicated ideas and he did not want any of it. He just wanted to get his movie made on time and on budget. And the, the reason I bring that up is because I think one, one of the things John said, he goes, well, who cares about all your fancy special effects if they don't care about my story? Hmm. And that is all stuck with me. And that, that's, that's what I'm, I bring that back to Fright Night. This story is great. You could do that same movie. With minimal effects or no effects, and it would still be a great movie.
1: It's true. I mean, the vampire makeups are so cool, but even if they just were a little style, a little white face paint and some fangs, you would still know that he's a vampire. But you guys got to bring that vampire to a next level that makes it stand out, as well as being a good story. But those things married, I think, what gives that movie a legacy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I take it you guys are going to be interviewing Tom as yeah, well. Yeah, we actually were yep.
2: scheduled to do that tomorrow. So if you have anything that you want us to pass along, tell us.
0: Uh, tell him to go fuck himself.
2: <laughs> I will say, it. Aaron's in uh, Georgia, so he's gonna Skype in. But I will say that directly to his face. I'll probably say it no, at I'm, the end I, of the interview. I,
0: I, I saw Tom a couple of
2: days ago. So oh, that's me. right. I and do you want to? <laughs> are do you want to talk about what you guys talked about? I saw that you guys put that on the there. You put a video on Facebook. Is there anything you want to mention about that?
0: Uh, probably not. And Tom shouldn't have said that either. <laughs> <Ooh>. Who, who <laughs> didn't you post the video though? I did post it because I no, Here's what I okay. I put. I shot two very short 15-second videos. And, and um, the, the first one is the one I wanted okay. to post because Tom was giving me life lessons. I mean, the guy is in great shape. Look at him. I mean, I don't want to tell you his age, but he's really in great shape. And so uh, he took it upon himself to sit there over uh, Frappuccino and, and give me life lessons. And so I, I turned the camera on. I said, hey, Tom, we got to do social media. It's 2018. Let's pimp ourselves. And I go, tell, tell, tell the kids, tell the audience a life lesson. And he just stared at the camera for like 15 <laughs> seconds. And I'm like, Tom, Tom, Tom. And he goes, no, I can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> like, because all the life lessons he was giving me were, were me. <laughs> he didn't want to come off that way. But he knows me, so he's like treating me like a, a kindly father to yell at his son. So uh, I go, well, Tom, we have to put something up, God damn it. And so that's what we, did. <laughs> but he's like, we shouldn't have talked about that project, but I had to put something up.
2: Well, everyone check out, you know, you'll hear our interview with Tom as well, but keep your eyes peeled for something cool between uh, Tom and Steve coming soon. But uh, let's, let's talk a little bit more about Fright Night. We talked about uh, Pencil Through the Hand. And if you guys haven't checked out Steve's YouTube channel, Steve, what is your YouTube handle?
0: I think, it, yeah, it's Steve Johnson's Rubber Rules. I think you can just type in rubber rules and it'll come up. He's got
2: so many amazing videos on there. Some of them are old vintage behind the scenes stuff. Some of them are new stuff that you did. One thing, actually the thing that made me contact you about this interview was you you do a quick video, a couple-minute video, talking about the pencil through the hand in Fright Night. And it's, ama- it's a great, great video, and I don't want to rehash it here, but you guys should check it out. Steve talks about how he does the the, the gag through the hand, talks about a little behind-the-scenes action for that. But that was just one of the many, many awesome things in that movie. I mean, you have the amazing evil Ed Wolf transformation, where he, he transforms from a dying, were- oh, dying wolf back into the human. And it's just... It's amazing that you melt two people. You melt the guy on the stairs, and then the 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 vampire at the end, uh, Chris Sarandon's death. Oh, a, oh. a great oh, yeah. sunburn, yeah. It, it just yeah, that was pretty the whole thing was amazing. Let me ask you this, and this this would actually buttress well with when we talk with Tom. When you're an effects guy, whether it's practical or digital, but certainly practical, and you have to come up with all this stuff before you get to set, theoretically at least. You got to work in pre-pro with the director and figure out what their vision is, what their budget is, what you're actually able to accomplish. And a lot of times that can go well and you and the director on the same page. And a lot of times it's fighting tooth and nail. And you don't have to talk shit if you don't want to talk shit. But how did the marriage between Tom's vision and what you wanted to do go? Were you able to give some good design input as well? Or did he just tell you exactly how he wanted it? How did that process go?
0: Well, again, it all started with the script. But the thing, you know, we're we're talking about the 80s here. And in the 80s, the design process, except for Ghostbusters and Slimer, was very different than it is now. Now, producers control every pixel in every frame of every shot. Because they can. Because, you know, when when you have to do something in pre-production, the only time you can make it work or make it fail is between the short period of time that the director says, action, cut. And that's it. It's done. Yeah. but now you can overlay it with digital you can throw it out and replace it with digital you can do anything so so they have a lot more input now because they can um, but back then they hired people the way people will buy a piece of fine art like if you like picasso you may buy a picasso if you prefer rembrandt if you're welcome, you may buy a rembrandt or a monet um, that's the way people used to buy their effects they go i prefer a rick baker style or i prefer a robotine style and they would buy their effects that way and they wouldn't micromanage and so tom didn't micromanage at all i came up it had so much to do with the look of the characters on the film and again i have to remember i have to point out that randy cook and i were still running the shop together right you know Randall and cook, he and i did ghostbusters and Friday night together there and poltergeist we, we co-headed the studio we would just put the effects up so on Friday night randy did the bats and uh what else I think you just did the bats and I did everything else. <laughs> 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 but where the fuck was I going? Oh, so yeah. So uh yeah, they they really respected us. And there was not a really long, long out design process. You also have to remember that Ghostbusters was a fairly large budget for its time. Bright Night was a fairly low budget for its time. So I'm just never fucked with us. We just let us do what we want. And that's always when you get your best work. That's always when you get your best work out of anyone that's working for you. And I learned that from Richard Edwin. When I, you know, my time with Randy at the monster creature shop is that Richard never micromanaged us because when you micromanage someone, you kind of pull the rug out from under their creativity. Yeah, and Tom did not do that either on *Fright Night*. He just goes, "I look, I trust these guys. They just did *Ghostbusters*, great movie, great effects. Let's see what they can come up with." And it's not like he didn't have any input, input but you know, like the whole asymmetrical thing I came up with for the werewolf transformation—that wasn't in the script. And the fact that different parts of the body. Transform in different ways. That certainly wasn't in the script, and uh, no one ever questioned it. I just said, "Hey, I think we can do this. Do you think it's a good idea?" And they said, "I don't know. Let's see if it works." We did it.
1: Oh, uh, it works really well. It's—I mean—that's—that's that's a really memorable one because I really do like the part where you see it as a full wolf, and then you know he stabs it with the with the table leg, and then when it starts panning up him, different parts are slowly coming back until you see his human face, and like that reveal is so well, it really anchors that moment as something that's really touching because you went from this vicious beast to this hurting child, and that's, that's such a, a, a memorable moment because of that, but then on top of it, these awesome
0: yeah, like, performance helps it a lot as well, but again, you know, my inspiration for that entire transformation sequence happened because I was fresh off the heels of both the Howling and American Werewolf, and I didn't want to repeat myself. I didn't want to do the same. Thing. And
2: yeah. that one speaks again to the the, the fact that you, I, I at least I feel that you try to cram so much into every shot. I know that there's one shot where a bust, a shot of his chest and his head, and the uh, there's it what appears to be a puppet hand is in frame, and then the the puppet hand is is skeletal and the wolf anatomy. That pu- that hand goes out of frame, it dips below frame, and then the actor's hand comes back up in the same frame. And oh,
0: that's it's right. amazing! And I, I watched it that. recently,
2: and when I watched it, I rewatched that one thing because my brain picked it up as like, wait, that hand is different than it was a second ago. And I feel like that's one of those subliminal, unsung effects that is—it just adds so much more. Again, like we said, so much more realism, so much more magic to that shot, you know.
0: In the business we call that the old Texas switch. <laughs> I don't know why we call
2: it that. <laughs> Who calls it that, means. you and Bart? I I know no, why.
0: Well, no no, it's a common term for, for doing a really you know, you know why? In the
1: I know why. I, I do know why. So back when they were doing cowboy movies and they wanted to shoot a gun, they had these these compressed air or like the zinc pellet guns. So they could shoot a gun and then they drop it out of frame because it was connected to a hose to make the air puffs or whatever the bullet system was. And they drop it out of frame and then be handed their prop gun to ride off with. And that's why it was called the oh, cowboy wow. switch.
2: Uh, now you're
0: like, we're all learning Look something. Look at this. We're I,
2: legit as hell.
1: Greg Nicotero taught me that, so I I can't take full credit, but yeah, Greg Nicotero taught me that when uh, we were doing a cowboy switch for The Walking Dead.
2: Why do they call um, Guts Nernies? Oh, I don't know. (laughs) Do you know why?
0: Uh, No, uh, Nernies, that word came from uh, the model-making industry, where they would bash, meaning they would buy, if they're making, let's say, a spaceship for Star Trek, uh, they'll from scratch build the general shape of it, but then they would go and buy a bunch of battleship models and other spaceship models and tank models, and take little innocuous parts that weren't recognizable and use them to detail the, the custom-built part. And those were called nernies So I don't know how we ended up calling guts. kit
2: bashing pieces hmm. used to be called nernies Oh them. wow, grebles and nerds. I, yeah. I just know it as like you know the like little like ends of silicone when you pull it from a mold or. Uh, when you do like latex guts and stuff, that's uh, that's the only time I've heard Nernies. No,
0: you know, I could be wrong. Don't listen to me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, 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 because I mean, even in the CG, in,
1: even in CG realm, when we're building a spaceship, and it's like add more Greebles and Nernies on that thing, and Greebles stick out, and nurneys look like bits and pieces. Like I, I, I can't I couldn't tell you the difference, but those those yeah, they, we we still call them Nernies when we're building spaceships.
2: This is like a a, a wow. This is getting academic now.
1: Yeah, you guys can send your tuition check to Launchpad Podcast, and I guess we'll split it with uh, Steve when we get a chance.
2: <laughs> well, uh, let's do this. Steve, can you tell us, I mean, you've had such an amazing career and you've done so much stuff. Is there any effect or two or even a movie that like specifically stands out to you and that you are personally proud of? Like Every time you see it, you pat yourself on the back.
0: Wow, that's, uh, that's a good question. Normally, people ask me what my, my favorite movie is that I worked on. I hate answering that one, so I just zone out and say Ghostbusters. When <laughs> I pat my... No. As I said earlier about the Nightmare on Elm Street scenario, I, I never like my work. And that's a tragic thing to say, but I don't. I, I, I like making it. But once it's all done, I can't make it any better. I can't go back, and I always think I could do it better. So I'm kind of always at least partially disappointed.
2: Oh, well, That man. was going to be my next question, because I feel the same way. Even There are definitely effects that I'm, I'm proud of, but like you said the effect I'm most proud of in retrospect I still feel like I could go back and try something oh it would have been even better if I did this so is there any are there any that you know that something that you've touched or done that in retrospect you wish you could have done this also or, or, or you know gotten it at a different angle no, all of them <laughs> any specific that stand out all of them
0: <laughs> No, I mean, if you're trying to goad me into talking about the abyss,
2: we can talk about that? I Ah. I wasn't going to goad you into it, but now that you've brought it up.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, and since you were also talking about the micromanagement of of working with a client to a vendor, I know the abyss was a vicious cycle of they asked the impossible right out the gate.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah. No, no, no doubt about that. The funniest story I have on the abyss is that... uh, I was still working on Nightmare on Elm Street, part four. We were finishing it. We were doing some post-production. I got the call from Cameron, and um, he was so paranoid he didn't want to let the script, the physical script, out of his office. So I had to drive down to Fox in the pouring rain down the 405 in rush hour, and sit in James Cameron's office in the front and read the entire script before he would allow me into his office to discuss it. Wow.
1: Did he keep peeking his head out and be like, you done yet? Are you done with that yet? What page are you on?
0: <laughs> no, he didn't. But, but so I, I, I think he was in there jerking off. He some- So he finally calls me and he goes, listen, what I want you to do here, uh, number one, is I don't want you to ever refer to these creatures as aliens. They are not aliens. They are NTIs. They are non-terrestrial intelligences. They are not aliens. That's number one. Number two. I want you to create the most beautiful, ethereal image ever put on film. I want it to change color. I want it to self illuminate. I want it to light up like a goddamn Las Vegas casino sign. I want them to be glass, optically clear. And I want to shoot them underwater, actually underwater. And he goes, Are you interested? And I just go, I just, you know, I was fucking 25. I'm like, Yeah, hey, let's do it. And she just changed that. <laughs> and uh, the, on, the, on the long ride home from Fox in the pouring rain in rush hour, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, wait a minute, Stan Winston did Terminator with James, he also did Aliens, why didn't James call Stan for this? <laughs> why, I don't get it, I don't get it. And I found out years later from Stan's son that James did call Stan, he gave him the same spiel, glass clear, underwater, change colors, light up like the Vegas casino sign. And Stan hung up on it. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but we made it work.
1: You did. I mean, boy, did you? I mean, it's, it is it is one of the most impressive things you see. But I, I think one of the, the hardest parts about that movie is because there's a CG element in that movie, people might not even know that the not alien aliens at the end <laughs> were real.
0: Well, they, they, I think I do know because if they would have been done digitally, they would have been better. <laughs> I don't know about that. I, don't I think, think that's, that's pretty true. harsh, They're,
2: especially when you take the time that you made that into consideration.
0: Yeah, but, again, but listen, hang on. you got to remember, too, that, that that water tentacle thing was landmark. James told me this, too. He goes, In every movie, I have to put one thing in. Every single movie. He did it in, 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 in T2 with the Metal Man. In every movie, I have to put one thing in. That the audience walks out of that theater and they go, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, how in the fuck did they do that? And so we didn't know. You have to remember, we didn't know at that point that that water tentacle would even work. So that wasn't the blow the audience away piece for James. It was the aliens. So in that, you know, having said that, we also had no digital fallback because you look back at that movie now and you go, well, if, if the aliens didn't work, sorry, the APIs didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> they could have just replicated them digitally. But no, no. That was the end of the movie. It was the climax. Talk about pressure. If those NTIs did not work, the movie would have never, what would they have done? Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was really tough. It was a lot of, that was the only time, well, until recently that I've considered suicide. Oh, <laughs> man. I mean. Well, like, how am I going to do the whole? This whole movie going to be ruined. I can't figure out how to get these NTIs to work. And, and, and if, if, if I don't kill myself. Cameron's gonna kill me.
1: I mean, talk about pressure. And I mean, it, 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 I can't imagine, especially on a, a movie that that's big, because at the time it might I, wasn't it the most expensive movie made at that moment?
0: I, I, I think was that it? I don't remember.
1: it's it's it's. I mean, it's definitely up there as being just massively expensive. Shooting underwater, shooting with all these different elements, and just huge sets.
0: Oh, it was crazy. I mean, because the, we shot underwater so so much, I and mean, people were literally. You can imagine shooting a fourteen-hour day underwater. People were falling asleep. Underwater, people were vomiting. Underwater, it was insanity.
1: How do you puppeteer a creature like that underwater? I mean, how many people did it take to puppeteer one of these one of these
0: creatures? Thirty six. <laughs> well, no, in, 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 I, don't know, it's, it's, I remember that number. That's real. Uh, third, not for blind. not for blind. <laughs> But when you see the entire scene, I think there's seven or eight of them. What? it took. 36 did you build seven or eight, or eight wow. individual
2: puppets for that shot? Like you built that many individuals? Yes,
0: wow um, yeah we didn't digitally replicate them at all they were all actually there working we built an incredibly difficult grid system above something like a four million gallon custom tank and uh, in this grid system um we could pop out planks like three by three planks and get down with all of our rods and cables and fiber optic machines and all that kind of stuff but we had no puppeteers in the water it was all operated from above really wow well we did build a full-scale one uh jamie at the, at the last minute james said i need a i need a full-scale one because all those aliens were half-scale aliens, mm-hmm. NDI's, NDI's, NDI's. <laughs> they were half-scale um they're meant to be six or seven feet tall and built them half-scale because there was nothing you could see in the relationship that would you know show you that they weren't so why build them mm-hmm. but then james decided he wanted a shot where ed harris reaches out and the NTI the, the grabs him by the hand, and you learn him to react in a couple of shots with a, a full-scale one. So we had to build that, and that one was operated partially underwater. Wow. So
1: that's that's incredible. And, I mean, it, it does work. And, and you know, it's one of those things when you put blood, sweat, tears, and, and, and all your hopes and dreams are just loaded into something like this. It, it does show. I mean, I really think the movies that are the most painful to make— have something in their fabric. Like when you watch something like uh, uh, Apocalypse Now that were just these bananas films to make at the end of the day, that that really does show. And, and I, I mean, I think the abyss yeah. is just a, an achievement.
0: There's no doubt. There's no doubt. So, yeah, I mean, and, and the, the outrageously convoluted long answer to your question is the abyss. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, let me, let me take it in a slightly different direction. Part of, Practical effects, part of anything really in the film industry, but definitely practical effects is like, okay, what do I need to do? What could possibly go wrong? What can I anticipate the director or actor or someone will throw at me on set? And you seem to, to really like we discussed at the beginning of the interview, problem shoot this stuff beforehand. So you're talking about this complex grid system where you can pick up and drop out different pieces. Uh, you, you were talking, I, I've seen in other interviews where you were discussing when you made Slimer, you made him with multiple interchangeable faces, which is so smart and it makes so much sense. You've done that on multiple movies up and through you know Blade 2. It's all that stuff where like you're seeing the problems literally months before they could possibly happen and troubleshooting it from there. But... All of that preparation, you can't see everything. Is there anything, we call them, Aaron and I call them, oh shit moments where you're on set. And even, it's not necessarily that something is not working, but something doesn't go the way it was planned. So the director maybe throws last minute on you.
0: Well, you, can't, you can't allow that to happen. This boils down to um, probably 1979. I made a gorilla suit for a series of American or commercials. Do you remember those? Were the, those, the are the, <laughs> those are those before luggage?
2: our time. I've seen pictures, but I don't remember them.
0: Yeah, uh, I don't know you know, I ask people if you remember the Duracell commercials where I made the Plastic Family. Those remember I remember. Those for sure. That was that was our Duracell. generation. Yeah,
1: that was Uncanny Valley shit.
0: <laughs> and in any case, uh, I made a gorilla suit, and I used. I was working with, with Rick Baker at the time, and he got the call, and he goes, "I don't want to make this. You can use my garage? You can use the old King Kong molds. Just make a new head, so it doesn't look the same." So I made the suit. And we shot all these commercials, the girl was trying to tear up the luggage, and evidently you can't. What's so funny about it? <laughs> but but I went to do one of these American tourist spots, and they'd hired another special effects guy. It was for a crossover commercial for big pins. And the gorilla was meant to peel a banana, and inside it was a big pin. And so I didn't do that effect, I just did the gorilla. And the, the banana effect didn't work, it just did not work. And I, I looked around. And I felt so badly for this little pimply-faced effects kid because when you're supposed to be an expert at something and you show up and it doesn't work, there is no worse feeling in the world because you're suddenly the enemy. You're not only not an expert, you're a fucking asshole. And I've just learned so much from that moment. I'll never make a banana that won't open and not have a pen inside. What happens is, you know, the directors and the producers are basically, when they when the guy screams action, it's like you've got a firing squad aimed at you. Yeah. And if, if it doesn't work, you get shot. And so you have to prepare for every eventuality. However, in answer to your question, I did have a terrible experience on a Stephen King film called Dreamcatcher. Yeah. And it's detailed in Volume 1 of Rubberhead. That's right, kids. You can pick it up at stevejohnsonfx.com, Rubberhead Volume 1. Rubberhead Volume 2, you can pre-order at rubberhead.bigcartel.com.
2: How am I doing? You're doing great. Anyway.
0: Yeah. We made this $100,000 German Shepherd, an animatronic German Shepherd that could breathe, could blink, its head could all around, its tongue worked, it snarled. I mean, it was incredible. It's like the one of the greatest animals I've ever made. Really cool. Costs 100000 bucks. Alien <laughs> wriggling in its belly. And this actor, Damien Lewis is carrying it over his shoulders to the town's water supply because the dog's infected. And Damien wants to throw it into the water supply so it will infect the whole town. So we get to set. We're shooting somewhere north of the Arctic Circle. Fucking 20 below zero. It's crazy cold. And we wire this dog up to Damien. And Larry Kasdan, the director, the writer, co-writer of the film, co-wrote it with. William Golden actually and Stephen King uh, calls action. My team, my puppeteers, switch on their remote controls to get the aliens wriggling, the head moving, the tongue wagging, all that kind of stuff. And the dog explodes. What? <laughs> Exploded. It caught fire. And the thing is, it's cabled to Damien, so he's now got a hundred thousand dollar bomb strapped to him, <laughs> the lead actor of this movie. And we're, it's 20 below zero, and we're like, what the fuck do we do? What do we do? This is insanity. And so we we saved him, and we, luckily he was wearing a parka, and the, the, we ran in as fast as a bomb squad, disengaged the dog, doused it with water, and then as the dog just laid there, $100,000 dog laid there spasming and sparking in the snow, everybody's like, you're fired. This is insane. How could oh. something like this happen? And here's what happened. In my defense, we had left the animatronic in the truck on location overnight. And what yeah. happened is ice crystals formed on the motors inside the dog. Oh. So the next day, when we switched the remote controls on, the motors heated up, sparked, caught the fur on fire, and there you go. So does that answer your question? No, nothing's ever gone. Yeah. <laughs>
1: oh I mean, I've heard the analogy that when they yell rolling on a big effects sequence, it's like the producers have lit a match and they're holding it over thousands and thousands of dollars. And if the take goes well, they blow it out. And if the take goes wrong, they drop the match and then their money's burning.
0: That's that's a great analogy. I prefer the firing squad analogy.
1: Oh, man. And, and, and I've I've been on set to see stuff like that happen. And it's just it's the worst moment. And luckily, it hasn't been aimed at me. But I can't imagine, when, like you said, that, you know, your $100,000 prop is now gone. And yeah, well, ultimately,
0: you, we did not get fired. Uh, we we didn't fix the dog. We just had to remove a few functions and we, we shot at the next day. And it was, it was fun.
1: But see, that that's that's a, a testament to your MacGyver moment. That's that you could pull that back and sort of save the day even though there you was... have to. A- what are you
0: going to do? Right. Right? <laughs> you no exactly.
1: Choice.
2: Though when, you, when you're on set, and I've tried to explain this to people who are not on set in positions like any of ours, the word just is like the worst word in the world. They're like, oh, well, can you make it just do this? You're like, yeah, but that's... There is no just. <laughs> like, it's not just... I was on a movie where we had to... It was a... a <laughs> a rodeo horror movie with killer cowboys and this guy was supposed to lasso (laughs) it was ridiculous it's coming Rumi. i will tell you when we watch that it this guy this guy throws a lasso around a girl's neck jerks her off her feet which breaks her neck so she's dead swings her body around his head and then lets the whole (laughs) rope go into a tree and then as she hits the tree she gets you know the body and the rope get tangled and she's hanging there and i had it fully set up. I had a a lightweight body that I rehearsed with the stunt guy that he literally could swing around his head. Everything was working the way it was supposed to. And then they come up and they go, we don't want to shoot the insert shots where the actress has to look like she's hanging. So can she maybe just get impaled against the tree when she hits it? But this is like an hour before we're shooting that. And she's like, yeah, can I just have a stick, you know, go through her stomach? And I was like, you can't just have a stick, but I will make something work and i had this whole rig set up and they're like oh but we still want her to hang i was like isn't that what you just fucking said you didn't want like that's why we're changing this effect Bar- last Bar- we just want it like that okay
0: well they don't understand and i remember the the did you ever see lord of illusions that club Bar- yeah Clinton?
1: absolutely yeah
0: it's like the day before we started shooting all the Nick stuff um the bad guy the antagonist uh, I went to a, a meeting with Clive. which a Sunday. We we're going to shoot, start shooting a sequence on Monday. And I went to a meeting with Clive. We're on set in Nix's lair and there's bones everywhere. And I'm with a visual effects supervisor, Tom Arnone, who's passed away, unfortunately. Uh, rest in peace, Tom. Um, and we're standing there. And Clive just, like, completely forgot about the storyboards or the months of planning or the hundreds of thousands of dollars of work. He goes, here's what I want him to do, Steve. I want to reach into Nix's mouth. And tear his face open and pull his jawbone out. <laughs> I'm like,
2: "What?" <laughs> I just want him to reach in and pull his oh, jawbone out.
0: This shoots tomorrow. I, are you? And I didn't say this, but I'm thinking Tom Renoni, of course, the visual effects supervisor who brought me under the job. He'll come to my rescue. He'll say, "Well, we can't do that, Clive, because we, we don't have that effect." And he said absolutely nothing. So Clive shakes my hand, leaves, and I'm like, "Tom, are you kill? Are you trying to crucify me here? We don't have that effect." And Tom just like. Points to a cow skull on the wall and he goes, There's a goddamn jawbone right there on the wall, man. It's symbolic. Make it work. <laughs> <laughs> a cow jawbone. Is that what old. he ended up using? No, we did not do that effect. I'm not that stupid. <laughs> <laughs> goddamn jawbone right there in the wall, man. It's symbolic. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I love that he was thinking though. He he looked for what he had around him and was uh, going to try and do it. But yeah, exactly. that is, but that is bonkers.
2: <laughs> All right, so Steve, you've done you've done a lot of TV as well as film, but a, a lot of the stuff that you've done has been adaptations of Stephen King, both for film and television, uh, and one you did, you did The Langoliers with Tom Holland, also the guy who directed Fright Night. How was it working with him? Langoliers was well after Fright Night, right? It was, yeah. Uh, what was it like coming back and working with him again?
0: It was great. Again, he uh, you know, he really trusted me. Why he didn't trust me to do the Child's Play robots, I'll never know. I'm still <laughs> pissed about that. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, we'll ask him for you.
0: But I did another film with Tom before The Langoliers. I did The Temp, which was a, a Tim... Tim Hutton and Laura Flynn Boyle film. Did you see that one?
2: Uh, I have not. I know what you're talking about because I know oh, Tim Hutton. It's
0: so loaded with effects and it's so weird. It's such a strange movie, but the theatrical version cut most of our workout, unfortunately. I mean, it just got so over the top, gory, and silly. I mean, we've got cockroaches and bees and worms crawling out of Tim, Tim Hutton's chest. Uh, we, we slice and dice Laura Flynn Boyle on a cookie making conveyor belt machine it's so absurd
2: it sounds like a tex avery cartoon
0: (laughs) it does it is the movie's so over the top i I wish someone would release the blu-ray of that uncut because it has got to be a cult classic
1: i mean well (laughs) i doubt any big time uh dvd distributors or producers are listening but if anybody Knows about this movie? Let's 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 put it out there. Let's get this Blu-ray out. I mean, that yeah, sounds I mean, amazing. You know, with
0: everything else, for God's sake, this one would be a great one. It's a Tom Holland movie, for God's sake. So yeah, we did that.
1: I'm reading the synopsis, and I'm like, why why <laughs> haven't heard about this? This sounds oh, amazing.
0: It, 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 it's funny. It is like a Texas card.
2: <laughs> was it outrageous. released in theaters, or was it a made for TV?
0: Oh no, it was it was a theatrical.
2: Movie. We'll have to check that out. And and if anybody. Out there has seen or heard of the uncut version. Please let us know. Let us know on Twitter. Let us know on keep Instagram.
0: Things pop up online. I keep seeing things pop up online where the with all that shit that I just described is cut out. It's gone forever. But somehow it's got to be.
2: It's got to be somewhere. Oh, well, man. I'll ask Tom about it tomorrow.
0: Yeah, you should. I forgot to ask him when I saw him last week. In any case, yeah. Then we did the Langoliers. The Langoliers again. Stephen King. With it, the thing that was interesting about this one is that of all the Stephen King projects I've done, it's probably six or seven. From the Shining to the uh, mirror shining, the sand, the mirror sand. Um, I can't even remember. I forget. I've done. Dr- you mentioned Dreamcatcher. You know no, actually, hang on a second. To hell with Tom, because Tom did thinner, and I didn't do That's that one. That's right.
2: Either. Tom did thinner. What was the <laughs> other one? He did it. He actually did a couple.
0: A of yeah,
2: Langoliers. And Langoliers is a good one. That was when I was just starting to, at least when I came out, I was just starting to realize that I really, really liked effects.
0: Oh, it's, it's, it's fucking brilliant. That, the, this, the story that that's based on is actually, well, I don't know if Steven's listening, <laughs> but it seems to, because if I, I look at, you know, I religiously watch Twilight Zone, and I can see how Stephen has been inspired by a lot of Twilight Zone episodes, but the Langoliers was inspired by Elron Ron Hubbard wrote a book, mm. a very small book, a novella. And it, I can't remember what it's exactly called. I wish I could. But that's exactly where the Langoliers came mm-hmm. from. It's about these people that uh, keep building the future at night and destroying the past. And that's what the Langoliers is all about. It's a great story. So, And there's another Twilight Zone episode that that's based on. Remember the one where the, the, the airline pilot looks down and the earth's gone? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So L. Ron Hubbard and Rod Serling inspired the Langoliers. Oh, some people could say Stephen ripped them off, but I don't like to see it that way. Um, yeah, we just did a bunch of fun stuff on it. And we the thing that was really cool about it is unlike all the other Stephen King movies, and again, Dreamcatcher is one of them, um, we shot in Bangor. We actually shot in Maine. And that was so wow. cool. I got to go to Stephen's house. It was so, so cool. And we just did a bunch of fun stuff. We did some really interesting tricks with Mylar. This was, again, before digital technology was very uh, accepted. And so I, I came up with this trick where I wanted to distort someone's face, but not distort it through a puppet head. And so what I did is I created, you know what Mylar is? Yeah, yeah. Uh, It's a flexible mirror, basically. And so I created uh, metal frames and I stretched this flexible mirror onto them and then hit it with a heat gun, which tightened it. Hit it with a heat gun ever so slightly. And it became as much of a mirror as a mirror is. And so then what we did is we would set these flexible mirrors up at a 45 degree, degree angle from the actor that we were shooting. So the actor's face was reflected in this flexible mirror, and the camera filmed the mirror, not the actor. You following me? Yep, yeah. So then what I could do is I could go behind that flexible mirror, flexible mirror, and touch it and run my fingers around it, and it would distort the holy shit out of the actor's face in a way that nobody had ever seen. And it was really fun. Tom, just like on Fright Night, let me go crazy. That's incredible. That's so How do you cool. come
2: up with, like, what was the, the 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 inspiration for that idea? Did it just hit you? Or did you see something that led you to believe that would work in that situation? Were you hanging out around funhouse mirrors?
0: <laughs> probably did come from a funhouse mirror concept, actually. I don't remember, but I, I will. I do remember this. Is back then, when there was no digital fallback, my mind was working 48 hours every 24-hour period to figure out ways to amaze people. So maybe it came to me in a dream.
2: I have no idea. It just seems like such out-of-the-box thinking. And a lot of your effects seem to have that same type of like, shit, I would have, a thousand years could have passed. I would have never figured out to try that. That's that's unreal. And also, I, that's kind of a cool segue to some of the stuff that you and uh, Bill Bryan came up with for Lord of Illusions and you later used in other movies and stuff. And I know he and I have done stuff from that evolved from that for Grimm grim and some other movies that we've done. Oh today, my God, but, the
0: world is made of plastic garbage bags at this point, the effects world. Yeah, can of, you,
2: you want to uh, talk about like the, cause you guys innovated that you can, you you want to talk about a little bit real quick about what that was?
0: Yeah, real quickly. It started on, on Lord of Illusions with Clive and I went in for the first meeting with Clive and I was a huge Clive Barker fan. I'd met him at a couple of conventions, but I didn't know him very well. And ultimately we became really good friends, but I went in and he goes, here's what I want. I want this bad guy next to, um, just be constantly changing and undulating and morphing. And I want it to be the most disgusting thing worms and bladders and just the, the, the most evil horror you've ever, never seen. And I go, okay, great. Well, that's great. So, what we'll do is we'll start with a life cast of <laughs> the actor, Daniel Van Barton, who unfortunately has also passed away. With uh, we'll start with a life cast and we'll do a sculpture. And he goes, Clive stops him right there and goes, no, 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 no. He goes, you guys, you effects guys, you always. Take a life cast of an actor, then you sculpt something, then you make a mold of it, then you cast it in foam rubber, and then you paint it. He goes, "That's not what I want." I'm like, "What are you talking about?" (laughs) And he goes, "Yeah, but it doesn't work." He goes, "You know, the muscles don't move. Nothing moves. It looks static. It never really works." And I'm thinking, he's right. He's actually right. And so I went back and spoke with Billy, and I said, "Well, what can we come up with?" And Bill. Uh, used to enjoy, well he still does as we all do, certainly in California it's legal, don't panic guys marijuana so what <laughs> he used to do is, before it was legal is in the studio he had a loft space to work and he would uh, he would smoke but then, so the, the aroma didn't waft throughout the entire studio he would blow it into a garbage bag and then tie the top so he would exhale into a garbage bag and tie the top and just... <laughs> So nobody would know, right? One day he got so high he just started fucking with the garbage bag and pinching and pulling it and he goes, Wow, this is sculptural. We could maybe make something from this. And that's how it all started from marijuana. <laughs>
2: <laughs> wow, that really? That's that's well, definitely thinking outside the well, box. You
0: guys, we're on a roll here and we didn't start talking about a Hawker Superman. <laughs>
1: Oh, man. See, it's so easy to get sidetracked. You keep coming up with cool things, and that makes you think about,
2: wow, how did that happen? How did this happen?
0: Well, I have to say, let me just interrupt you. This is actually a really good, is, is, is off to a rough start as we got last night. This is a, a great interview. A fun.
2: Oh, thank! You. That means that actually means a lot to us, Steve. Well, remember, <laughs> the
0: question is, how the fuck are we going to make this fun? <laughs> yeah,
2: <funny>. yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, as if, hey, man. If you're having a good time, that's, I mean, because we're we're talking literally to someone who inspired us and shaped our careers, So uh, by default, we were going to have a good time. That's enough.
1: Well, and like you said earlier, (laughs) somebody else, if we're having a good time, somebody else is going to have a good time. So that's been our mantra the whole time we make this show. That's my
0: motto when I, as I said earlier, when I do effects, if it excites me, it's going to excite the audience. And it's my motto when I write, too. If I'm crying when I'm writing, uh, the reader better cry too if I'm laughing the reader better laugh
2: too there you go
1: well i, I do want to finish on your books but before we get to Chinese media. the 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 <laughs> <laughs> before we get to that the the I, I would love to bring up superman and and i've seen the documentary that's
0: a great
2: documentary isn't
0: it
1: phenomenal documentary um and, and w-
2: the death of superman lives what happened
0: john Peter's fault it's amazing it's so funny isn't it
1: so good, and it's so interesting, but you were working on making this electric suit, correct? Yes. Where did you even begin?
0: Well, it, it, you know, it's like a lot of the stuff we do is built, it's like standing on the shoulders of giants. It's built from something else we've done, and so that gets you thinking in different ways, which you would not have thought about had you not done the other project. So, for instance, we've done, we're have known for quite a while for our underwater work, and that started with the Abyss. And then I did... Dean I Kuhn's film called Phantoms, and we did a lot of underwater work on that. We did a sphere, Michael Crichton project, a lot of underwater water work in that. I love working underwater. Uh, but with this Tim Burton Superman suit, we had done the abyss, and we had tried to figure out how to illuminate these NTIs and make them change color underwater. And the, the obvious answer well, it wasn't obvious in the beginning, but six months later, after considering suicide, we, we decided upon fiber optics. And so that's where the fiber optic idea came from. And also the style loom idea, that raver glow juice. So we do a lot of different Mm -hmm. tests, but we, you know, we've kind of already been down that path before. And we're like, okay, well, this is the way it has to be.
1: The evolution of it. That's interesting. So, so you have this, for people who don't know in this, it was like Tim Burton was going to direct the Superman movie and the Superman suit is like clear with like lightning glowing lights all throughout it. And Nick Cage was going to be Superman. I I kid you not. That sounds insane. But you watch this documentary and this movie would have been visually stunning. So interesting to see it actually realized. And it just never got off the ground. I think it might have been
0: Tim Burton's most remembered work had it been done that way. Because it's just so fucking out there. And remember, we weren't just doing the suits. We were doing Rainiac had a ship that would have mm -hmm. put the Star Wars cantina to shame. We designed so many puppets, hybrids. Animatronics, makeup characters. I mean, it was loaded with, and we were doing Doom, I mean, Brainiac, all of them. It was huge, massive.
1: It looks incredible. The art design for this and the concept work for its it hits you every time. You're like, wow. And then you realize that it never happened. And then it just, well, just company, oh, uh,
0: um, and a lot of these never before seen uh, designs and, and photographs will be in volume two of Rubberhead, which you can pre order on rubberhead.bigcartel.com. <laughs>
1: Get that plug in, hell yeah, guys! I mean, oh, okay. we'll, we'll definitely we'll we'll lay down a, a, a proper plug at the end of this. That, that, that guys, you really should. I mean, you've been hearing all these stories and and getting it in writing and getting to hear all the stuff that is it can't be covered in an hour and a half. But uh, this Superman thing, go see the documentary, uh, "The Death of Superman Lives." What happened? Amazing interviews in that. Just seeing this suit is one is an incredible thing because it's the fiber optics look like muscles. N- Nick Cage with. Beautiful flowing locks yeah, of
0: hair. Yeah. Like well, you know what mullet. we did on that? Um, is that uh, I got really into lasers for a long period of time because on again, on, on on the Abyss, we were using xenon to illuminate the fiber optics, and it's such a hot light source that it would melt yeah. the gels and it would actually melt the fiber optics, and so we'd have to put oh, in front of it to knock the light down. And and Cameron was like, I need these goddamn lights brighter, goddamn it, is there anything to do to me? I'm like, it's xenon. Jim, it's, there's nothing brighter. It's melting the fucking cup. What do you want me to do? And I go, well, there's a filter in front of the lens. He goes, take the goddamn filter out. There's always a filter. I need these brights, these lights brighter. And, of course, we took the filter out and it would melt them. But on Superman, I, I had the bright idea that I was like, wait a minute. If, if, if Xenon can like eliminate these things, and it wasn't bright enough for Jim, and it probably wasn't. I mean, you can see they changing color in the abyss, but they would have been better if they're brighter. Uh, Jim was right about that. He's always right. So I thought to myself, wait a minute, what about a concert system actual laser? So on the Superman suit, we literally got an incredibly dangerous concert system laser, and that's how we illuminated those. Oh,
2: that's amazing.
0: The, the funny thing is, it's, that could be my second story. Had we made the movie, that the suit would blow up and that cage would be dead now.
1: <laughs>
2: and the producer drops the match. <laughs> That was before Dreamcatcher so you didn't have the experience the fire the fireman experience necessary to put actors who were on fire out.
0: Well, listen, had I killed Nick Cage, I never would have gotten the job on
2: Dreamcatcher. <laughs> That's <any> true. <laughs> <laughs> the documentary with the the, the what the, the death of Superman lives would have still been a documentary, it just would have ended a little bit differently.
0: Yeah, with luxurious <laughs> locks bursting into flame during a test.
2: <laughs> <shoot>. <laughs> Man, think about that footage though. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, speaking oh. of
2: footage, I've seen some amazing test footage of some one-to-one scale Hulk animatronics that you did for the Ang Lee film. Yes.
0: That looked no, that, amazing. No, that was not the Ang Lee film.
2: What was it for? A different one before that?
0: It was. It was the first big budget Hulk movie imagined. And it was Gail Hurd, the producer of... Uh, well, she used to be married to Jim, Jim Cameron. Producer of Terminator. Bit. producer. My boss? Yeah, producer of, uh, of Walking Dead.
1: Oh. Uh, Yep.
0: Well, she's married to a gentleman named Jonathan Hensley, who's probably responsible for more box office dollars than any other single writer on the planet to this day. He did Die Hard, and
1: just yeah. list
0: them off any movie that was a huge hit. And so this was his directorial debut. At
2: Universal. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah,
0: and he was going to be the first guy to do a Hulk film, and so we worked on it for six eight months. We spent over a million dollars developing all this stuff, and then Universal pulled the plug.
2: Oh, it's a shame because if you guys have seen and there's plenty of footage online some of it is on Steve's very own YouTube channel it is incredible and it would have I-, I think it would have worked it looked so awesome.
0: Oh my god but see that wasn't the only thing we were building I mean there was a contingent of gamma raid fucked up other characters there was giant insectoid characters there were uh, there was a super Hulk because guess what. One Hulk's not enough anymore. you got to have one that's so big you can't even film it, right? So we had, there was so much work in that. We were doing a suit version. And, of course, digital technology was around then, but it was used the way it was used, at least the way we were planning in this film, it was used the way um, Spielberg did in Jurassic Park, which is totally ambulatory, long shots, digital, close-ups, practical. So, yeah, we were making tons of very of the-art robotics on that film and we started them we sculpted them we mechanized them we were so ready to go and then one day John called me up and I go hey John how's it going and he goes I've been better the picture's off click oh so it wasn't just a matter of going out to my studio and saying to you know the hundred plus employees that they're no longer employed it was it was so tragic because we didn't get to change the face of the film industry which we would have. Almost just like Jurassic Park, these were the biggest animatronics ever imagined since Jurassic Park. This was T-Wing. Yeah.
2: Wow! And it looks it wow. looks absolutely incredible. If you guys well, can that, that, check it out,
0: the Hulk you are talking about is one of the smaller animatronics. You should have seen the other stuff we were developing.
2: Is there footage of it?
0: No, no. Is well, there's there's still photos of the sculptures. For the other ones, all we got through uh, were the sculptures, those super Hulk and the insect guys and all that. Because remember, these guys are gamma radiated, so we did makeups. To start the transformation process. And then as they got bigger and more mutated, we blended into giant animatronics.
2: And it's, you know, it, it's it's easy in a in a in a in a film like that or with effects on that scale to be like we keep saying, amazed by just the scope of that. But I saw test footage of just the bicep going from human proportion to Hulk proportion. And it was oh,
0: the transformation piece, yeah. It was
2: beautiful and it screams you know the Steve Johnson transformation, like hold this shot as long as possible. I'm not gonna let the camera shy away from what's happening yeah, no,
0: here. That was really cool. That was outstanding. I like that one. And, but you have to remember that was not like the first time we ever tested it. It was very jerky. It would have been much better ultimately.
2: Oh, but even the even the yeah, test footage yeah, looks. Never, it's I never exactly liked what you want. Like, no,
0: that <laughs> that was good, but it was really shitty. It could have been better.
2: You don't have to. We we'll, we everyone will <laughs> like it for you. Your your fans and our fans and uh you know. We got to thank you Steve for taking the time to to swing by the launch pad and talk with us. This has been incredible.
1: Absolutely. And before we we take off, I, I do want to ask you about you, we we were talking in the break a second that you know, you're one of those guys who when you get bored you got to find something else to challenge yourself and something else to conquer and and now you've gone into writing and you're writing these novels and making these memoirs. What has been what has it been like to become an author after all these years oh, good of question. of being a a different kind of crowd. Well, it's
0: been utterly fascinating first of all i have to say that i have more groupies now than ever when i go to these conventions because i'm now a quotation mark writer which is so strange for me does that sound pretentious it is but it's like it's like now they you know kind of like moved off and people are like holy shit it's really crazy i get more attention now well you probably wouldn't be talking to me if it weren't for these books
2: right well, we would because we oh, knew we would. you. We would. We would. We be. knew you yeah. from effect stuff. But the cool right. thing about but, the books but, but, is it no, bridges. I have
0: a second resurrection here with the writing. My sure. career is back in the spotlight now, and it's uh, be careful what you wish for because it's uh, it, it, it's it's intense. But I will tell you this: the the the, pro, the see because you don't just try something. You either do it right or you just don't do it at all, and so. uh,
2: I think Yoda said that. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) Do or do not, there is no try.
0: Well, the the point I'm trying to make is um, you don't just decide one day that I'm going to be a writer and the next day you'll write a book. You don't, because there's a saying that it takes about five years to become very, very good at anything, whether it's brain surgery, becoming a concert pianist or anything. The way I see it is don't let time get in your way because if you say, or if you think, I want to play the piano, one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to, Practice, 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 every day, live it, love it, dream it, sleep it, start out really shitty, but in five years, guess what? You're a concert pianist. But the thing that's funny about that is those five years are going to pass anyway. So this is why I say don't let time get in your way, because those five years will pass anyway, and at the end of those five years, you'll either be a concert pianist or just another asshole that wishes he could play the piano.
2: <laughs> that's true. That's, well, that, that's actually pretty good words to live by there.
0: And so I decided to take writing seriously. And there's Stephen King says you've got to write about half a million words before you can even consider yourself a good writer. And I've written, with, with all my novels and short stories, because I've written several fiction novels too, uh, as well as the five volumes of Rubberhead are already written. And, and many, many short stories and essays. So I've written almost half a million words, and so now it took me a long time. But I can look at it objectively and say, yes, I am a good writer now. But in the beginning, you can't tell. Just like when you start sculpting in the beginning, you don't know if you're good or not because you can't see it. And if you can't see it, if you can't see it objectively, you don't. You, you could sculpt an ashtray and say it's the best werewolf in the world, but. Are you following me at all? It's like absolutely pound and pound and pound and pound until you can have objectivity. And I'm a little bit objective about my writing now, and I think I am a good writer. But it's because I've worked on it for so, so, so long. Nothing comes for free. And writing to me is the most creative thing I've ever done because when I'm working on a movie, I've got a director, I've got a producer, I've got a production designer, I've got a wardrobe designer, I've got a team of a bunch of crazy sculptors uh, that I have to work with. It's a very collaborative effort but writing yeah when i write i'm the producer i'm the director i'm the wardrobe designer i'm the actors i'm all of it and i edit through punctuation it's it's like filmmaking but it's also like is is pompous and as ridiculous as it's almost like touching just just raising the fingers of god it's true art it's true creativity in a way that makeup effects have never felt to me
1: that's amazing. And I mean, that's partially why we podcast. It's so hard to put a project together like a movie. But when you have all that control, you you have creative freedom and there's something to that. And it's really inspiring to hear that from your makeup days. You, you, you know, you, you started off looking up to people like Rick Baker as an author. Who is your Rick Baker now that you're in this new range? Who are you looking? Who, who inspired you from this angle?
0: So many people, but, um, oh, my God, you really want to get into this? Um, (laughs) Kurt Kurt Vonnegut, Kurt Vonnegut, and one book in particular,
2: Slaughterhouse-Five. Sure. Oh,
1: wow. Billy Pilgrim has
2: become unstuck in time. Uh, I read it. I I was literally talking about that book with my father uh, two days ago.
0: Really? Well, there you go. Kurt Vonnegut, uh, Hunter Thompson, uh, Stephen King, Clive Barker. uh, There's a wonderful author that I absolutely love called Tim O'Brien, who was a Harvard graduate who got drafted into the vietnam war ended up on the front lines and wrote seven books from this incredibly intelligent viewpoint about what the brutality of that experience is but it's so poetic because he's such a smart guy and who would ever expect such a smart guy to end up with a bayonet stabbing a vietnamese guy in the neck you know and and, and then talking about how that reflected upon his life and the rest of his life Um, So 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 authors there's another one dave eggers do you know dave eggers I do not. He wrote a memoir called A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius. Oh, wow. He was was on the Pulitzer finalist list. He didn't win it. But it's basically a memoir, and it's astounding. Another great, great influence on me. Um, uh, There's so many people. How about Cormac McCarthy? You guys got to know him. Yeah, oh yeah. The The thing that I love about Cormac's work is that um, he writes on purpose on an old-fashioned typewriter. Specifically so that he can't go backward and edit his work. So it just comes yeah. out of his head and it stays there. And there's a lot to be said for that because I over edit my own sculptures. And then I look back at them and they're worse than they were when I first vomited out. This is the way H.R. Giger works. That's what I learned from working with Giger is that you know his paintings just come out of him fast and then he moves on to the next one, and he just vomits it out. And that emotion, that original emotion gets translated from his mind into the third dimension. And there's a lot to be said to that. That's why I like Cormac's work. So we could go on forever about this, but yes.
2: As yeah. far as vomiting up your work, when you're writing, now you've written things like Rubberhead, which are uh, you know a personal memoir of your experiences in the film world, but you've also written novels. Yeah. Do you have a preference as to which writing style or which, which, which I mean, I guess it's the I, same I'm meaning. I
0: much prefer fiction.
2: Oh yeah? You know, just because you can have more control and more fun? or uh, it, It's
0: just more fun. It's just way more fun. And that's why, if you take a careful look at the five volumes of Rubberhead, they're they're kind of fictionalized because they happen in present tense, and so there's dialogue, and it puts you in each scene, each you know movie story like a fly on the wall. So you're really there. You're really there. And I didn't carry a you know a pen and paper around in 1982 and write these dialogues down. So it's it is fictionalized to a to a degree. So, but I, I much prefer fiction because anything can happen.
1: Before we we wrap up, wh- where can people find your books? Let's give it one big plug, guys. Seriously, you've heard how awesome these stories are. Go find go find the Rubberhead books. Go find Steve's fiction books. Where can people find them? And and l- give give your social media plug.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You you well, you can find Rubberhead Volume One. We're almost sold out. We're totally sold out of hard covers. There's a few soft covers left. You can get Rubberhead Volume One on my website. Uh, it's sold out on Amazon. So you have to go to my website. That's Steve Johnson, my name, and then the letters FX, stevejohnsonfx.com. You can buy the soft cover there and you can pre-order volume two, which is already written. We're in the design process. It's going to deliver in October. You can pre-order that at rubberhead.bigcartel.com. And you can follow me on Instagram. It's Steve fucking with no G Steve fucking Johnson on Instagram. <laughs> and, um, uh, Facebook, I've got too many friends, so you can't do
2: that. <laughs> well, the cool, the <laughs> cool thing, if you guys are interested in Rubberhead and have not yet read it, Steve, on your site, don't you also have digital versions of it, like an audiobook where you are that's reading true. it? Oh my
0: God, that's true. There is a, a, a PDF. If you live somewhere else, where the shipping would be prohibitive outside of the U.S., there's a PDF. You can get the entire book as a as a as a digital download. And there is actually. Yes, read by yours truly. Read by me. There is, uh, and I read it on marijuana edibles, so it is a blast. See, I was going
2: to say, I heard, I heard <laughs> that in some sections you go off script too and just start I go doing off-script
0: Constantly, I was just talking to some people about this line. I go off script constantly because I'm high as a kite, and it's you get so much more from the audio <laughs> download. So yeah, you can get that on my website too, SteveJohnsonFX.com, and it's cheap. multi to pay for shipping.
1: That's that's awesome, Steve. Thank you so much. And guys, you can keep up with us on our Instagram, on our Twitter, and on our Facebook at Launchpad Pod, and on our website launchpadpod.com This has been such an amazing interview. I I I, I re- I'm always a little nervous when we bring a guest in if it's going to gel, if we're going to be funny, if it's going to be interesting. But this is just this has been amazing. So I can't thank you enough, Steve. And thank no, you so thank much you for coming too. on the this show. This
0: was really 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 fun for me too. Um, Start going off to such a hiccupy start last, last night. <laughs>
2: no, I mean, it, you know, we figured it out, and it was no problem. And this has been
0: yeah. I'm gonna have to remember this because I am having problems with Skype, and I know Facebook cuts or Face FaceTime cuts out too. So this is a great. This seemed perfect.
2: Well, we only yeah. have a thousand more questions that we'd love to ask you. So maybe another time we'll bother you to come back on and do a a a, a volume two. Uh, Steve Johnson on the Launchpad Volume Two. If you're up for it.
0: I would love to, so stay in touch, guys. This was really, really fun, and it was a great way to get my weekend started, and I was actually dreading it, but it ended up up being a blast. Wow, that's really appreciate No, 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 let me give you a caveat. Not dreading it because of you guys, I don't even know you guys. Just dreading it because, believe it or not, I'm kind of tired about talking about myself. Unbelievable, isn't
2: it? I don't believe it, I I admit.
0: (laughs) 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 All right, guys. Ignition sequence start, six, five, four,